Hello, my name is Matt Moses, and please stand as we read scripture. Uh, today I have the privilege of reading 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. And just one thing that came to me as I read this was that God gives us everything, and we here in Lake Country are so blessed, and we have so much more than so many people in this world. Um, we really need to be extremely thankful and giving because we are truly blessed. 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Matt. Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Welcome to Disciples Church. My name is Jonathan Mosier, and it is a privilege and an honor to get to open up the Word of God with you and for you this morning. I know many of you were gone uh, on vacation over the last week, maybe over Labor Day weekend, and we are so glad to have you back with us safely. And if you missed the last couple uh, of sermons over the last few weeks, um, I'm going to encourage you to go back and listen to those on the podcast, listen to them online. We addressed the role of elders, the role of deacons, the responsibilities, um, specifically the responsibilities um, that go along with being a deacon and the qualifications of elders. I think it's a critical thing for God's people to understand. There's a reason the Bible spends as much time as it does addressing those topics, and I also think it's critical for us uh, here at Disciples to understand what it is that we are to expect and partake in with those rules. So if you have time, please go back uh, and listen to those sermons, but for this morning, let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Well, having given his instruction on the structure and authority of the church, Paul at this stage in 1 Timothy chapter 4 now gets back to addressing the topic at hand. If you remember beginning in chapter 1, Paul was addressing that false teachers had made their way into the church, had risen up from within the church, and were beginning to draw people away with lies and myths, with endless genealogies, with all kinds of perceived knowledge and wisdom that was not given by the Holy Spirit, but was actually constructed within the context of their own minds, and within what we're going to find out this morning, the influence, demonic influence had begun to creep its way into the church through self-proclaimed leaders of the church and the abuse and the abandonment of the gospel. And in this text, Paul is advising his young protege, Timothy, on how it is that he was to handle the false teaching that had made its way into the church. How is it that he was going to shepherd the people of God in Ephesus? How how was it that he was going to correct those who had drifted from gospel truth, from the revealed word and works of God, those who'd become enamored with obscure tertiary topics and had even begun to promote unbiblical ideas to the people of God? And in order to properly understand this chapter, I actually want to set the table a bit for this conversation by referencing back to something that happened in Acts chapter 20. You can turn back there if you like, but I'll read it for you so that you don't have to if you don't want to. And I think this flashback 
is helpful. It's actually going back in time just a little bit to the moment where Paul was leaving the Ephesian church. He had trained up and appointed elders to be responsible for the pastoring and the leadership of the church at Ephesus. And so Paul has this tearful address to the elders and the church of Ephesus. It's recorded for us by Luke in Acts chapter 20 as Paul is leaving to go back to Jerusalem. And here is that address for us, beginning in verse 25 of Acts 20. Paul says, And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Verse 36, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul. And they kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. Acts 20 is a fascinating passage in its own right. It's fascinating because we get an insight into the relationship between Paul and the church, the the deep and intense affection and love that he had for these people. And 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 contrastingly, the love and the affection that they had for him as their pastor. And you can imagine in your mind's eye here in this moment as Paul is gathered with the elders of the church, likely with the congregation looking on and seeing this address. These are men that he had most likely witnessed to and proclaimed the gospel to and and perhaps led into salvation. These are men whom he'd trained up and discipled. These are men who he'd sat down with and, and studied the word of God and proclaimed the word of God and and told them about his own story in coming to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. These are men for whom he had deep and lasting affection. He had poured his life into them, and he was entrusting to these men something that was incredibly valuable to him as a pastor of this church, but even more so, something that was incredibly valuable to God himself. These are the people for whom Jesus Christ shed his own precious blood. And you can see the the fatherly compassion and concern that Paul has for this church and for these elders in this address to them. He reminds them of their ongoing need to devote themselves to the grace of the Word of God, to be consistent in searching out the Scripture and devoting themselves to what it says. And he specifically warns them that there were going to be fierce wolves who were going to come into the flock. These are people that had an intention of drawing affection and glory and honor and wealth and praise for themselves, not for God, and that there were even going to be those from within the congregation, those who would rise up from within the church, perhaps even the church leadership, who were going to begin drawing people away from Christ. 
who are going to twist the Word of God to serve their own selfish purposes. And I want you to think about this because the elders that were gathered there with him at this point heard Paul, heard the instruction, appreciated it, wept with him, got down on their knees and prayed with him, embraced him as a brother, kissed him as a deep sign of their affection and love for him, and wept as he left their congregation. The whole congregation is likely witnessing this interaction as they, as they heard from Paul and said goodbye to their beloved brother. And Timothy himself certainly would have, been, would have been among those who were present at this time. In fact, likely, and this is at least my opinion, nothing more than that, but in my opinion, I'm guessing that this is perhaps even the moment that Timothy has in his mind as he's reading this particular portion of the letter from Paul. He's remembering the brothers who stood with him that day, who embraced Paul and demonstrated their love for him and heard the instruction from him, but now had drifted. These are men alongside whom Timothy himself had ministered. They learned together under Paul's instruction, and we already know from reading earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that at least a couple of these men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, had fallen away. They left the faith altogether. And as we read 1 Timothy chapter 4, what we find is the fulfillment of what Paul was warning about in Acts chapter 20. Timothy and the congregation that day had seen these men, leaders in the church, go from being those who were weeping over the passing of Paul to another city to now being those who were twisting the Word of God for their own advantage. And these men did so without any sense of self-awareness or irony. They had so missed the instruction of their brother Paul that it didn't even occur to them that this is what was happening. And so from this point, they had risen up. They had twisted the Word of God. They had begun to enrich themselves. They had lived debaucherous lives. We know that from the instruction that was given earlier in this text about the the responsibilities and the qualifications that belong to elders. It's fair to assume that the reason Paul needed to reiterate this is because there were some from within the congregation who'd been in a position of leadership and hadn't been doing those things. And now, as if all of that wasn't enough, they had started to draw away faithful followers of Jesus, disciples of Christ, is what Paul calls them in Acts chapter 20. And on top of all of that, they began to sow dissent among the congregation in Ephesus. We learned about that at at length in chapter 2. And to all of this, Paul now says in verse 1, Now the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit of God, expressly says, explicitly, without question, says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And Paul starts by saying that the Spirit expressly says that this is going to happen. Now Paul's going to go on later in this book and throughout the remainder of the pastoral epistles and he's going to address the idea of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the writing of Scripture. He's going to talk about that at length. But all one actually needs to do to see where the Spirit expressly says that these things are going to happen is look backwards into the Gospels into events that had already taken place. And so we find, for instance, Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 10, saying this, in that day, speaking of the the later times, those times that were to come, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. 
and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And Paul, speaking of this very moment in the first century Christian church, says that moment has arrived. We're here now. Now, whenever we see a phrase like in the later times or in the last days, we have a tendency in our mind to jump to a whole host of ideas, usually around the the idea of eschatology, which is the study of end things or the study of last things. We get into the idea of particular teachers about prophecy and about end times. We think of the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. And it is easy when reading a text like this to get sucked into a conversation that is decidedly not the point of this text. So there are some people who, when they read these words, immediately begin the process of trying to determine exactly where we are in the end times and how far we are from the return of Christ. And so what that inevitably leads people to do is take their eschatology, their view of what is going to happen and what the last things are going to be, and lay it over current events. And that's been happening, by the way, for at least 2,000 years to try to determine exactly where we are in this process. And as events in the world and even in our own country intensify, people have a tendency more and more to try to read the tea leaves. But what's interesting is that we are never encouraged to participate in that sort of navel-gazing activity, and that's exactly what it is. This text was written nearly 2,000 years ago And Paul indicates that the Ephesian church was already experiencing the reality of what it is to live in the last days. So what does the last days or later days actually mean? Well, there was a particular context in which this was spoken. Jewish theologians referenced things in terms of the present age and the age to come. There was this very particular division between the age in which the Jewish theologians lived and the age that was to come. And the dividing line between those two ages was marked by the coming of the Messiah himself. So Paul is saying here in this text, now that the Messiah has come, now that Jesus Christ has come to this earth and he's lived a perfect life and he died on the cross and he rose from the dead, that was the initiation, the ascension of Jesus Christ is the initiation of that later age. That now that the Messiah has come, we now, 2,000 years removed, find ourselves where the Ephesian church was in the later days. And that as we live now, between Jesus' first appearance and his eventual return, we live in the already and the not yet. Which is to say, we are enjoying the wonder, the majesty, the gift of knowing who our Messiah is He's been revealed. We don't have a question. We're not looking forward wondering, is that the Messiah? Is this the Messiah? Is the Messiah going to come in my lifetime? We know who the Messiah is. He's been revealed. His name is Jesus. He's the Son of God. There's a wonder and a majesty about the already, what's already happened in history. But we also live in the not yet, meaning we are looking forward with anticipation to His return. And so the press for us in this text is not to focus on figuring out where in that timeline we fall as if we could, but to realize that there is relevant work for us to do now. And Paul is encouraging the reader here to remember that living in this era, we are to look out for those who would twist 
the gospel and use it as an opportunity for their own agendas and purposes. See, Paul's concern for the church was the same as that expressed by Jesus in the book of Matthew. That there were those within the, within the context of the church who claimed faith in Jesus who were in danger of apostatizing, meaning abandoning their faith, rejecting the truth of the gospel, rejecting the truth that they claimed to have received, and they were doing that by falling for the lies and the perversions of false teachers. So Paul's going to say these false teachers, by distorting and adding to the gospel, were actually embracing the teaching of demons. And think about that because that seems like really harsh language. I mean, if you'd have gone through at least some of the fundamentals of who Jesus Christ was, these false teachers may very well have said, oh yes, I believe that about Jesus. Of course I believe that Jesus is necessary, but I believe that Jesus and something else are necessary. And Paul is going to explicitly say that to embrace that idea is to embrace the theology of the demons So to understand this a little bit, we have to understand the idea that as soon as somebody claims faith in Jesus Christ, Satan is immediately at work. That there are all kinds of pitfalls and temptations, there are all kinds of false teachings that can, that can draw somebody into a a lack of understanding or a misbelief about who Jesus was, and one of those temptations is the idea that they need to believe in Jesus plus something else. So C.S. Lewis, who's most famous for, uh, for writing the Chronicles of Narnia, is one of my favorite authors. I'm reading through The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe with my boys right now, and if you haven't read it, you need to. Um, but one of the books that C.S. Lewis wrote was a fictional work called The Screwtape Letters. And in that book, uh, he takes on the persona, he writes from the perspective uh, of a senior demon named Screwtape who's writing to his nephew named Wormwood about how it is that he is to, t- to tempt and to lead into temptation, to lead into, uh, into a denial of the one true God, this one particular human being. And so writing from the perspective of the devil, or of a devil, rather, to an apprentice devil, here is what Screwtape writes in that book. The real trouble is that your patient, that is the the Christian who is trying to live a life pleasing to God, is that your patient is living in a way that is merely Christian. They all have individual interests, of course, but the bond remains mere Christianity. What we want as demons, mind you, What we want, if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in the state of mind that I call Christianity and. You know, Christianity and the crisis, Christianity and the new psychology, Christianity and the new order, Christianity and faith healing, Christianity and and psychical research, Christianity and vegetarianism, Christianity and spelling reform. If they must be Christians, let them at least be Christians with a difference. Substitute for the faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring. Now, mind you, Lewis wrote this book in 1942, so the ands that he includes are things that may or may not actually make sense to us, but we could substitute our own ands in there. Christianity and our particular political perspective. Christianity and our own hobby horse regarding whatever cultural issue seems to be of utmost importance at the time. 
Christianity and good works. And whether or not these men were aware of it, this was exactly the sort of folly that the false teachers had embraced. And in doing so, they had abandoned the gospel that they'd been taught. They were actually being used in this moment by Satan to lead others into spiritual shipwreck. And it's interesting to notice the progression in these first few chapters. In chapter 1, Paul tells Timothy, don't let the people be drawn away by myths and endless genealogies. Don't let them buy into the machinations of these false teachers. Well, why? Because in chapter 4, we see the outworking of what happens when people buy into these particular myths and endless genealogies. Their consciences become seared, and they become insincere liars. Their consciences are seared. They no longer have any moral compass. They have so given themselves over to their own sinful indulgence and their own physical desires and their own desire for the affection and affirmation of other people that they no longer have a sense of what is actually right and wrong. They are seared. They can't even tell the difference between what is good and what is evil anymore. And they are insincere liars. They are hypocrites. They proclaim a truth that they do not actually believe, or at least to the extent that they claim to believe it, they don't live according to it. It's what Paul writes about later in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, where he says about these false teachers, they have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. Now, what was this conscience-searing, demonically-influenced, insincere teaching that gave these false teachers the appearance of godliness and the ability to deceive the church? Well, we're told that actually in verse 3, and this is presumably part uh, of a larger list, but at the very least, Paul lays out these things for us. He says, here's what these insincere liars, influenced by demonic ideology, actually proclaim to the church of God, that they forbid marriage, verse 3, and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. That among the ideas promoted by the false teachers was the notion that you made yourself holier, more acceptable to God, more spiritually attuned by forbidding marriage, specifically abstaining from sex, and abstaining from particular foods. And that whole idea comes from the misunderstanding that somehow, through your own actions, you can manipulate the Spirit of God and manufacture your own righteousness by adding to the work of Christ. That somehow the work of Christ is not enough for you. That what you really need to do is clean yourself up in these ways, and specifically what that meant for these false teachers is you don't get married and you don't participate in any kind of sexual activity within the context of marriage and you don't eat these particular foods. And those notions are a falsehood that find a stronghold in different ways in every generation. And though it sounds, though it sounds like and is positioned as a noble thing, I'm going to abstain from marriage, I'm going to abstain from these particular foods, Paul actually says that to put this opinion on other people is something that the devil actually uses to draw people away. Now understand, he's not condemning singleness. 
He's not condemning abstinence for those who are called to a life of abstinence. we're, We're told that God gives some people specifically the gift of singleness for a particular reason, for a particular ministry that he has for them. But when you see this sort of accusation from these people within the church, it's the same sort of thing that we saw from the Pharisees towards Jesus. Do you remember one of the criticisms that the Pharisees had for Jesus? They referred to him as a drunk, a glutton, and a friend of sinners. That because Jesus drank wine and because he ate food, the accusation that was going to be made about him was that he had actually abused those things. It's the same root of the accusation. And so here's the big idea. To deny yourself of things and to create unto yourself a new spiritual law by which you believe you can improve your standing before God is an implicit declaration that Christ's work on your behalf was just not enough. that God needs your help. And so well-intentioned people end up putting themselves back into spiritual slavery in what amounts to a denunciation of the freedom of the gospel. So Paul writes about this at length in Colossians chapter 2, and here's what he says beginning in verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world... Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So do you understand what Paul is saying there? He's saying there are some people who are going to tell you you need to live this particular way, something that the Bible does not prescribe and does not command, but they're telling you you've got to eat these particular foods and live this particular way and partake in these particular actions and avoid those particular actions. And here's ultimately what Paul says about all of that. He says by telling you don't handle that, don't touch this, don't taste that, they have an appearance of wisdom. They look great from the outside. They look like gurus and they look like they're spiritually enlightened and they look like they're disciplined. But what they're actually doing is promoting a self-made religion, something that has nothing to do with God at all. And they're promoting asceticism, the idea that you can grow closer to God by denying yourself and severity to the body, treating your physical body worse as a means of trying to gain spiritual acceptance to God. Think of medieval practices like self-flagellation, whipping yourself to demonstrate your sincerity to God. And Paul is saying, if you are trying to figure out how to stop indulging in sin and to grow in righteousness, which is a good and worthy aim, The answer is not to construct increasingly strict extra-biblical prohibitions, meaning prohibitions that are not found in Scripture. The answer, Paul recommends, is to see yourself in light of what Christ has done for you. So in chapter 2, verse 20, he begins by saying, you need to understand that you were dead with Christ, that the old you was as if it were nailed up on the cross with him. And then finally to see in Colossians chapter 3 verse 1 that you have been raised with Christ. 
So seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That old person, that old man, that old you, if you know Jesus Christ, is dead and gone that God no longer sees you that way, that is no longer your standing before him. And yes, we still have the vestiges of our flesh that are trying to pull us into those things. We have earthly desires, we have physical desires, we're desiring to find our satisfaction and our affirmation in things in this world. But what he's saying is your positional standing is as one who is righteous. So now you need to remember that not only did you die with Christ in his death, but that you were, you were made new and alive with him in his resurrection. You are made a whole new person with new affections and new desires. That the means by which you put our, we, put our de- we put to death our sensual desires is recognizing that our life is wrapped up in Christ. Colossians 3.3 3, 3. That in Christ's death, the old you, the old man, your flesh has died and that in his resurrection you have new life to the point where, Paul says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. So why then are people drawn away by external religious conformity when the Bible advocates internal spiritual freedom? There's probably as many answers to that question as there are people in this room. But I think for some, they're driven by accomplishment. Very naturally, we cannot reckon with the idea that the work is done. And for some of you, particularly if you came to faith maybe later in life and maybe you'd grown up in a particular religion or a religious sect or some particular environment in which uh, religious practices were, were recommended or required of you, one of the hurdles that I typically hear from people in that position is part of what took me so long to come to faith is understanding that I couldn't bring anything to it. What do you mean? God just loves me? How does that work? Why would he love me? What about me is lovable? Now, I've got to clean myself up, and I've got to do the right things, and I've got to participate in these rituals. I've got to do these things to make myself acceptable to God. And I know I can't make myself perfect, but if I can clean myself up just enough, maybe I can become lovable in his eyes. And God is going, no, that's not how any of this works. While you were at war against him, he saved you, according to the book of Romans while you were at enmity with God, while you were still shaking your fist in his face, declaring that you did not need him, in that moment God set his love on you. Think about that. That's a hard concept for all of us to get past. And others are driven by an insecurity about their own story. Here's what I mean by that. The church in the modern era has indulged in an idea that elevates the stories of people who've been saved from all manner of gross sin over the stories of ordinary conversion. So here's, here's, here's how that plays out typically. You've got a woman who was involved in witchcraft and she was involved in drug addiction and her life was a mess and she didn't have anything together and God miraculously saves her and that's the story you hear at church. 
You've got a guy who was a part of a gang and he was involved in all kinds of violence and, and his life was a wreck and he was involved in criminal activity and God saved him and in a miraculous way his life turned as if it were on a dime and he was a different person. And listen, those stories are good and amazing and we need to hear them because they force us to recognize the idea that it is God himself, not us, who changes the human heart and breathes new life into what was once dead. But here's the danger in elevating those stories. It makes someone who has a boring testimony feel like, well, maybe I've got to prove just a little bit more that I'm okay in God's sight. I've got a boring testimony. I grew up in a religious home. I don't remember a time where I didn't attend church. I remember all the songs I learned at vacation Bible school. I remember all of these things. But the implicit message that happens when those kinds of stories are elevated is that more of a miracle has taken place in the life of a criminal turned Christian than in the life of a church kid turned Christian. And the truth of the matter is that whenever someone is brought from death to life, a miracle of epic proportions has happened. And so Paul is going to tell us in Galatians chapter 5, do not undermine the miraculous nature of your salvation and the freedom that Christ purchased for you by submitting to a yoke of slavery through self-imposed rules and regulations. So what then is the appropriate response for the true believer to the false teaching of those in Ephesus? Look at verse 4. For everything created by God is good, And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Now don't miss the beauty and the freedom of those verses. Because what Paul says is that when we receive with gratitude the good gifts of God's creation, we are now in a position to enjoy them to their fullest extent. That whether it's food or marriage, God gave those gifts as a means of revealing his goodness and his generosity. And like any good gift giver, he intends those gifts to be enjoyed. I can tell you this, on Christmas morning when I buy my kids gifts and and we get them a toy that they've been asking for or looking for, I have yet to have the experience where they open up the gift, look at it and say, this will look really great on my shelf. Thank you so much. No, they rip the packaging open as soon as they can and they dive in and you know what? Inevitably, they even end up breaking things. Why? Because they are enjoying those things to the fullest. And though that's not a perfect analogy, it's the idea that Paul is trying to communicate. That Christians are in a unique position to enjoy to the fullest things that this world perverts and abuses. That unlike what you may be tempted to believe, the Christian life does not offer a hampered or incomplete version of what the world gets to experience. Far from it. Rather, when you recognize the creator and the gift giver behind the gift, the gift itself becomes that much sweeter. Now in verse 5, Paul's not suggesting that there's anything that magical that happens to those gifts when we pray, but rather that in that prayer, our own hearts are properly ordered to receive them. 
So here's what I mean. It's the idea that when we sit down at a meal and we stop in prayer, and by the way, this verse is one of the bases for actually why we do that, though there's nothing magical, right? It's the idea that when we sit down at a meal and we stop in prayer to recognize God's provision for that food, we are not simply partaking in a religious observance. We are orienting our heart to receive and to recognize the goodness of the gift giver. That's what the author of Ecclesiastes writes in chapter 3, verse 12. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. It's the idea that when a husband and a wife recognize the gift of their God-given sexuality, and when they're enjoined together physically, there is a very real sense in which God is glorified by their union. And we find that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, and in Proverbs chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. And the enjoyment intended by God as we partake in a meal or within the confines of sex and marriage is something that cannot be rightly produced without recognizing God's provision of it. So here's the operative question for us. What would it look like for us as Christians not to be known primarily by our prohibitions, though certainly we ought not partake in what the Bible calls sin, but rather to be known primarily for our deep enjoyment of what God has given us. That we would faithfully and righteously and strongly reject the legalistic standard of religious hypocrites and faithfully and rightly indulge in the good gifts of our Heavenly Father that we would be known, in the words of John Piper, as Christian hedonists, believing that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him, and understanding that God's gifts to us never terminate on themselves, meaning We don't experience satisfaction in food or in sex or anything else simply for the sake of satisfaction, but rather that in experiencing that satisfaction, our hearts and our affections would be turned toward God in recognition of His generosity and His provision. You see, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That in finding satisfaction in God and in realizing that the gifts that He's given us are meant to point us to Him, we would ultimately be in a position to glorify Him and make much of Him and live a life that is vastly different than the world around us, that seeks satisfaction and cannot find it, that seeks acceptance but never reaches it, that longs to be whole 
and still feels lesser than. It is the uniqueness of our God and our Savior that enables us to find satisfaction in Him and in Him alone. He reveals Himself through His goodness and He invites us to participate. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we realize that we realize that these words were written some 2,000 years ago and yet we find ourselves in a culture that longs for satisfaction, that claims and professes that people can find satisfaction in their own self-realization of who they are, in their own reimagining of who they are, in a constructed identity individually or as part of a group, in particular acts and indulgences. And yet, God, what we see around us in this world stands as evidence that the satisfaction that is promised cannot be delivered by anything outside of you. And so, God, as we read these words, would our hearts be renewed to realize that you are a good gift giver, that you give us good and right things, not so that we would merely enjoy them, but so that in enjoying them, our hearts would be uplifted and our affections would be drawn and our minds turned to the beauty and the wonder of who our gift giver is so that we can glorify you and make much of you, so that we can live lives that are unique and different, so that our lives themselves can point to the God of all creation. And so, God, as we get ready to leave here this morning and eat our lunch or take a nap or watch a football game, would we do so in recognition that you are a gift-giving God? That the simple pleasures of this life are meant to reveal their creator. And in so understanding, would our hearts be turned in worship to you? And it's in the beautiful name of our Savior that we pray. Amen.